This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Brent Laster. Brent is a trainer, author, and speaker on open source technologies and a senior R&D manager at a top technology company. Brent is presenting a number of live online trainings over the next few months. His course, Building a Deployment Pipeline with Jenkins 2, will be held on March 14th and 15th, and Migrating Jenkins Environments to Jenkins 2 will be on March 19th and 21st. In April, he'll be presenting two different courses on Git, Git Fundamentals, which will be held on April 9th and 11th, and Next Level Git, which will be held on April 25th and 26th. And you can find out more about these courses and register for them on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Brent will also be leading a workshop on PowerGit at OzCon, the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, which will be held July 16th through 19th in Portland, Oregon. And he is the author of the forthcoming book, Jenkins 2 Up and Running, which will be published this spring by O'Reilly. He previously wrote the book Professional Git, published in 2016. We'll talk to Brent about many aspects of Jenkins 2 and Git. Enjoy the show. Hi, Brent. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, we want to cover both Jenkins and Git today, but let's start with Jenkins and the concept of pipeline as code, which comes to the forefront in Jenkins 2. And basically, this just means that you create your pipelines as structured code, right? And then the pipelines are programmed through coding. That's the general idea, Jeff. It's an, uh, an approach that's different from traditional Jenkins in terms of the web forms and such that we use there, but it adds a lot more flexibility around creating your pipelines and allows you to treat them like source code in the same way that you can put your source code under uh, source code management where you can do things like check the history, you can do things like comparing differences on them, do code reviews, those kinds of things. It brings all that kind of functionality to your pipeline as well, which is a big win for DevOps teams uh, and being able to treat their pipeline just like they do their source code. So you mentioned flexibility, but can you explain how pipeline as code helps developers visualize and then, of course, eventually implement uh, a continuous delivery pipeline? Absolutely. So with pipeline as code, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of the kinds of uh, functions you can do and more uh, freedom to style it in the programmatic way. In traditional Jenkins, you were kind of restricted in terms of web forms that kind of had you filling in pieces and fields and properties in there too. And you kind of had to know the right thing to type in in this place, the right thing to type in in that place and select in there too. With the pipeline as code, you're able to do more of a design up front of your code and try things out easier, debugging it and trying it again. In fact, there are features in Jenkins to one called Replay, which allows you to go back and try your code as it was at a certain point in time and make simple changes to it. So it's a kind of a tooling and environment that developers are used to. And so it kind of bridges that gap from uh, the development side of the house, the infrastructure side, uh, which is kind of one of the founding ideas of DevOps. Well, let's step back and, and talk a little history about the changes between the traditional Jenkins and Jenkins 2 the latter being introduced uh, about two years ago, wasn't it? It was about two years ago. Yeah, I guess it, there's been a, um, a move to kind of do some different, the different approach with the pipeline as code in Jenkins for a while. The original form of Jenkins that a lot of people know and love and have used, and one of the reasons it's been so successful, was it allowed you to kind of guided you through the process. It had a lot of web forms. You could kind of fill in the pieces, fill in the properties and stuff there, as I mentioned before. And you could create entire pipelines, but you had to do it in a way that was different, as I mentioned, from just traditional kinds of coding. 
You had to create different jobs as different uh, using different web elements and then find ways to chain things together. And it wasn't always easy um, in the traditional form of Jenkins. So sometime several years ago, they introduced the idea of a workflow plugin, which was more about allowing you to create your pipelines as the code in a coding environment there, as you're more used to. And that eventually really has caught on and has become the focus of Jenkins 2. Now, Jenkins 2 still supports the traditional kinds of uh, jobs they've had before. They call them freestyle, which allows you to be very flexible in the web interface and selecting uh, your build system or your source management system, that kind of thing. But the pipeline as code just adds an, uh, a great new element to it and allows for more flexibility. And again, this sort of more of a DevOps take on things, being able to code up your pipelines. And as things change, being able to easily change them and store them in separate files, we call Jenkins files, for example. Right. And just to step maybe even one step further back about uh, what what Jenkins is and what what it's always brought to the table. Uh, and I think this kind of leads us into the question of because, you know, Jenkins is a continuous delivery product. But uh, you've recently written an article about like what the difference is between continuous integration, continuous delivery and continuous deployment. Can you? Talk more about that. Sure. Um, I, Jenkins has been around for a long time. And one of the reasons why it's been so popular is, is uh, it has a large community support out there. A lot of people develop plugins for it around a lot of tools and pieces. And it's really become arguably one of the most well-known kind of continuous integration, continuous delivery workflow and orchestration engine out there. Um, and from There's really three different things, as we as you mentioned that have evolved out of the continuous movement, the idea of continuous integration uh, being that as source changes in a source control system, tools like Jenkins can monitor that and can identify there's been a change made and take that and do basic uh, build steps, in a, uh, running tests on them, unit tests, and kind of verifying that the changes that have come into the source management system uh, don't break anything. That's really kind of the idea of that part. When we talk about the continuous delivery aspect of it, carrying it further down this sort of the idea of a pipeline from the builds and the test of the individual pieces into things like integration testing and packaging and uh, doing uh, source code analysis, gathering metrics on it, number of change lines, uh, looking for bugs in the semantics, that kind of thing. So then combining it with other pieces as well and pulling those pieces together. And then we get into continuous deployment, and that's the idea that if your pipeline has taken a set of source changes and has put them through all of these different uh, levels of quality, checking ever-increasing levels of quality on these, they pass the unit test, integration test, function test, pass the code analysis, are able to pull pieces in, then the idea is at that point, you have proven that what you have is deployable, that it, if your pipeline is sufficient in all this testing, that it is proven that your code and the things you produce from it that this produces something that is deployable and usable for end users or customers out there. Now, continuous deployment would be the idea that I could take that then and I could automatically deploy that out to either a test environment if I want to still have a manual control on the end, or I could go ahead and just put it out in real time. Some companies tend to make lots of deployments every day on a very frequent basis. Others tend to put them sort of in a test environment out there until they're ready to use it. Some people may choose not to deploy at all, but continuous deployment gives you the option of there. 
Um, there's a favorite quote I have, but I can't remember uh, all right now, but essentially it's the idea that continuous deployment doesn't mean that you deploy every run through the pipeline, but the pipeline proves that it is deployable. Can you give us a, a quick overview of the Jenkins DSL, which is Groovy-based, right? It, it is. So Jenkins, uh, the, when they were originally working kind of on the original the workflow plugins, which were early kind of uh, predecessors of the pipeline as code stuff in there, they've really developed uh, into a syntax that is a combination of Jenkins DSL steps, meaning kind of customized steps that implement things that Jenkins jobs would understand, such as um, archiving um, artifacts or initiating builds, triggers, and stuff like that. But there's also there's two basic forms out there. One form that they call two styles of syntax you can write your Jenkins pipelines in. One that we refer to as uh, scripted, which is essentially any valid Jenkins code and the Jenkins DSL steps in there. And this is more of an imperative style, meaning it's the, the logic programming. You can define variables, you can do loops, you can do all those things. And then there is a, uh, a built-in feature in Jenkins too, which is fantastic, which is called the, uh, the snippet generator. And so one of the, the challenges you face when you start first trying to do your pipelines as code and working with things like Jenkins ESL is trying to figure out, okay, is there a Jenkins DSL step for this? And if there is a step, what are the, what are the parameters it takes and what kind of values can I put in? So the, the, the Jenkins community has added the snippet generator into Jenkins 2 that allows you to go out and have sort of a wizard. You find the step in there, the plugins add in the settings for it, and they provide steps in there. You can select the step. You could then it'll prompt you for the parameters and different values you can put in. Then you click a button and it says generate the code. You click a button and you can copy and paste the code. So it generates the step for you. That works on either scripted or declarative. But to get back to what I was saying about the two different styles, scripted is essentially a groovy program uh, with Jenkins DSL steps thrown in. This works great if uh, in, in a lot of cases where you want the maximum flexibility and you are a programmer coming at it from that standpoint, you're comfortable, uh, especially if you know groovy and that sort of, uh, of uh, you have those sort of background. If on the other hand, you're coming from just using Jenkins in its more traditional form, where you have a very structured environment and you're going through these uh, web forms traditionally and plugging in values there and describing to Jenkins what you need. I need this source management system. I need this build, this sort of this build piece and so on. There is an alternate syntax that they are really uh, moving forward uh, kind of as their default future one called declarative pipelines. And declarative pipelines have a very structured form in there. You might have a section of the pipeline, for example, that declares these are the build triggers, the things that start. These are the tools that I need. So there's a tool section, there's a trigger section, there is stages and steps and all this. So declarative pipeline is more for people coming directly from the traditional Jenkins out there. And you're still writing code, but it's in a uh, Jenkins structure out there. And the advantages are that it gives you uh, a lot more of the kind of error checking and uh, structure in there. Disadvantages are you can't do some of the groovy programming constructs, but you have scripted for that. So there's a couple of options for different ways to create your code out there. Well, let's talk about a few of uh, the other Jenkins 2 features. And can you um, start by uh, how you can separate your code in a Jenkins file? Sure. So Jenkins file is a, is a way, we talked about pipeline as code, but 
there is a there and there is a new pipeline style of project in Jenkins. In the same way you would traditionally create like a freestyle project, you start a new item, create a project out there. You can create your code within the Jenkins application itself. You can write your code in a window in a pipeline style project out there. But where the value of having your pipeline as code really shines with Jenkins is now being taking that code and storing it in an external file called a Jenkins file. If you think of any build system you've ever used, you have a build script, same kind of idea. The code is then stored uh, in its Jenkins file, and that's the name of it, capital J-E-N-K-I-N-S file. You can then take that file and put it in with your source code in your source code repository out there. And that's what really gives you that external sort of way of being able to have your code be reviewable, tracking the history, looking at differences and all those kinds of things. The other cool thing about a Jenkins file, and it's something that's a, a nice, a very nice thing they've done, is in addition to having your pipeline uh, stored in an external file that you can easily edit and review and all that, the Jenkins file is used as a marker as well. What I mean by that is that Jenkins has introduced the idea of, at a basic level, called a multi-branch project, which means that I can point, if I have a Jenkins file in my source code repository, and if I have a Jenkins file, I might have one at every branch of my project, I can point Jenkins at that source code project. It will scan and see if it finds a Jenkins file. And if it finds a Jenkins file in the branch of that project, it will automatically then be able to run the code in Jenkins itself. So it's sort of automatic project creation just by pointing it at the repository and by virtue of there being a Jenkins file there. And can you briefly describe the, the visual interface, which is called Blue Ocean? Absolutely. So the, the visual interface for Jenkins 2 is, is Blue Ocean, and it uh, has been steadily evolving and, and uh, is coming along quite nicely. This is a, a, a way to visually see your pipelines executing as well as creating steps in there too. So if you're not necessarily excited about trying to write code to do your pipelines, you can take an existing code base, point Blue Ocean at it, and create pipelines from that. And you can also then see these pipelines as they're being executed. So if you think of a traditional Jenkins interface with like a dashboard and different things and watching the pipelines execute, you might in the past have been looking at the console log, the, the, the screen output, the text output there. Blue Ocean then takes each stage of a pipeline, and stages are defined sections in pipeline as code, and represents it on the screen as what I coined the term halo, meaning a circle that kind of gets filled in as the pipeline is executing and you know turns red, green, that sort of thing for success or failure out there. And you can click on those individual circles and then be taken to the different output for the stage and stuff. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe it in, in an audio conversation, uh, but it actually is a, a nice interface and does present a nice visual way to look at your pipeline if that's something that's helpful to you. And it seems like Jenkins 2 is pretty easy to integrate with other tools like Git and Gradle, right? Oh, absolutely. It still supports, uh, like I said, all the freestyle stuff in there. But at, at a higher level, Jenkins 2 still supports the idea of what I say, uh, configure globally and select locally. The idea that I still tell it in the global configuration section that I have a, an installation of uh, Artifactory here as an artifact server here, or I have an instance of Git in this path here. And so you configure all the things you have available there, and you, install, you still use the plugin things to install the plugins, as long as they're compatible with Jenkins 2. 
but you still install the plugins, you still configure things at that higher level. And then within your pipeline code, you can reference those things. For example, there is a tool step, DSL step called tool, that you can say, pass it the name of a global configuration value. Um, say you called, you've installed a version of Gradle, Gradle 3.2, and you called it that. You can say tool Gradle 3.2 in your pipeline code, and it will go out and grab the path that's defined in global configuration. So it still works very well, uh, very easy to use with all the same plugins and global configuration. And how about some of the new project types? Are there any one or two of them that you'd cite as perhaps being most valuable? Absolutely. I think there's a couple in there that really stand out in terms of Jenkins, too. Uh, this goes back to the idea of using the Jenkins file as a marker. If you have that Jenkins file with your pipeline code in the source management system in the branches, you can then have uh, this multi-branch project. The idea, again, of taking Jenkins pointing it at your source code repository, and it goes out, scans the branches, and if it finds a Jenkins file, it spins up a separate job for each branch. You don't have to do anything. It just takes it and runs with it. Maybe carrying that a little bit further, there are the ideas within uh, some of the popular Git hosting sites like GitHub and Bitbucket out there of organizations or um, teams and that sort of uh, thing. The idea of sets of projects that may be together for a, a corporation or enterprise. And Jenkins has support for uh, GitHub organizations. So again, you take this idea of the multi-branch project and extend it across projects, you can point Jenkins at a GitHub organization, and it can go out and look at each project as a separate thing. And then within each project, scan for the different, the presence of Jenkins files and creates jobs that way. So it really makes it easy to scale up the automatic creation of jobs for these things that use Jenkins files out there. And really, uh, can be very helpful in that kind of a environment. You can also have things like webhooks on the uh, application side, on like the GitHub side, that notify Jenkins of changes, and Jenkins can respond based on that. So lots of, of uh, new and good support for being able to deal with projects on a much larger scale than you may have been used to. And that's a perfect transition into the other main thing we wanted to talk to you about today, and that's Git. We mentioned at the top of the show that you do uh, two O'Reilly online training courses on Git and that you're the author of the book Professional Git. Um, so the usage of Git is is pretty widespread, but for those who may be using another source management system, what is it about Git that makes it stand out in your mind? So there's a... There's a probably uh, a number of things I could talk about here, but I'll just kind of briefly talk about the idea of a, um, a distributed source control system versus control system versus centralized one. Traditionally, when you're working with a lot of traditional source control systems, maybe like a CVS or a Subversion, the idea is you have a server out there that you have to connect to. It has one source of the truth. It has all the revisions, all the tracking information in it. And usually when you're working on content from that, you connect up to it, you grab a, a set of files, and you're changing a file at a time and kind of uh, doing that. And if you need to create a branch, it's a very labor-intensive process. You go out and uh, or create the branch, and it can be the system goes through and tags different versions of the things to create the new branch and so on in there. And the other point about that is if you're not able to talk to the server, you're not able, not able to get work done. In the Git world, Git's an example of what we call a distributed version control system. Different model, different way of thinking. The idea here is that rather than interacting directly with that public side, that public server, 
I get a copy or a clone of the remote repository, the public repository, as it is at that point in time, down to my local system, my local machine. I can then do all my source management operations against that. And I don't, and then when I'm ready, I can sync it back up to the public side. So I can do everything very quick, very simple on my local machine because I'm talking to a local copy until I get ready to sync up again. The other main point about Git is that it tends to store things in a way that we call like snapshots, meaning it stores for every change you make, it's essentially storing a copy of all the content there. So since it's storing a copy of all the content in each change, each change really has the potential to become a branch in source control. And so creating branches in Git is almost instantaneous. You just have, it's basically just uh, putting a branch name to some previous commit out there. So branching in Git is very quick, very easy, and very efficient. Okay, from all the training sessions that you've done on Git, is there something that you've found uh, that uh, you'd maybe expect people to know about Git that they actually don't know? That's a hard question. I, I think I think I, I'll say a, a general sort of thing, and it's, I don't know if this is this is a non-technical answer. I guess I guess the the thing that I I've, I've been that I've seen over and over when it comes talking about Git is people tend to think of it as just another type of the same sort of source management that they've done before. I talked about like the centralized thing. People tend to think, oh, I should be able just to take my same code from CVS, put it in the Git repository learn some new commands and, and deal with that. And that's not the case because of the way that Git works. It's more suited to many multiple smaller repositories rather than the larger kind of monolithic ones people may be used to. Uh, for example, in a, in, a, in a traditional source management system, you might have a single source management repository that has produced you know, five or six different artifacts or pieces out there and those are just stored as subdirectories as part of that source management project. In the Git world, it would be more common to have a separate repository for each of those pieces out there. So it's a different way of thinking about it, and it, it's, it's challenging. It takes a bit of a mind shift, as I say, to get to, get to the point of thinking about Git in a different way there. But that's a lot of people just come in with the idea, oh, it's just another source management system, and it's easily translatable from what I did before. And it's it's not really, but there's a big payoff once you do make that transition. Well, your uh, the, the workshop that you're presenting at OzCon is on Power Git. So, what, what's your focus there? Is it really kind of some of Git's lesser known features? It, it is. It's one of the more advanced features of Git. So, a lot of people, you know, when they're learning these kinds of things, tend to sometimes learn enough to kind of get by with what they need on a day to day basis. And then if they get into situations where they need to do something differently, it can be very challenging to, uh, for them to figure out what, where to go from there. So Git has a lot of functionality that's built in kind of at the lower levels in there uh, that you can take advantage of. One of the kind of unique things about Git, and this can be a, a positive or negative depending on who you talk to, is that you can rewrite history. You can go back in and you can modify things that are already in the repository. That first sounds a little bit scary, but it actually has a lot of, of uh, value in cases. For example, if I um, unintentionally had a password in a file or even in a commit message that was or somebody put up there two months ago, and so all the revisions since then have had that password out there in clear text in the repository, 
we don't necessarily want that in there. We can use tools in Git. There's tools to go back and modify those past commits to be able to do things like take that out of there and to be able to do that. And we can also, there's power features in Git for teaching it how to remember, to automatically do a merge situation that we run into over and over. If we are regularly taking a branch and merging one branch into another and then somebody taking the next few changes, merging them in, we can teach Git to learn how to merge that automatically for us so we don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over. So it's both a, a function of uh, making things easier for users, but also if you get into some difficult situations, learning how to work with Git to um, do some things on, and if you think about it, the surgery and stuff on the repositories that you might need to do at some point. One of the ones that I think is really interesting is the bisect feature, which uh, enables you to find out when a bug was introduced. Um, so, but to find that out, is that relatively quick or, or is it pretty involved? It's actually relatively quick, and this is the you know the cool thing about open source software, and is you get such a, a wide community of developers and people always making suggestions and improvements, and there is so much to a tool like Git with all these features. You mentioned the bisect one, um, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a quick one to once you understand how it works. It's like a, basically a binary search. You know, you say I I know my current thing that I'm working on has a bug in it. I know the one ten levels back or ten commits back was good. So the bug got introduced somewhere in between. And what Bisect allows you to do is essentially say, okay, Git, the one 10 levels back was good, 10 commits back was good, the current one is bad, help me figure this out. And essentially what Git will do is it will give you the one in the middle and say, okay, tell me if this is good or bad. And based on your response there, then it'll cut that section in half, and give you the one in the middle of that range, and then so on. So eventually it narrows in on the one where the bug was introduced. And it's a very cool thing to uh, to use and to actually observe how it does it. And even, even as I said, there's so many different functions in Git, there are so many different options on those functions. And one of the cool things on Bisect is there's actually a way to have it automatically run a script. So if you have a script that can test whether a change is good or bad, you can have Bisect go out there, pull the revisions, cutting the range in half every time, and automatically run the check until it figures out and reports to you and says, okay, here's where the problem was introduced. Any other uh, advanced feature that, that you want to pinpoint here? Well, I, I, one of my favorites, I guess, is the filter branch one. So there's sets of commands in Git. They call them <laughs> they call them the plumbing commands and the porcelain commands. The, the porcelain commands tend to be the user-facing ones out there, and the plumbing commands are the lower-level ones. And filter branch is the lower-level one. But it's, it allows you to do those kinds of things like I talked about, to go back over previous commits. Um, you could do simple things like just changing the email address. You know, if somebody left the company and you want to go back and put the, a new person's email address on, you can do that. All the way down to the kind of things I talked about, like actually modifying files, you know, and pulling content out of them and rewriting those commits in there. So once you get once you get the idea of some of these utility commands out there too, you'll become the Git expert in your area out there. And the people, you'll get a lot more questions about Git, but you'll, you'll understand a lot more about it, too. Well, Brent, this has been great. If our listeners want to find out more about you or your activities, uh, where can they find you? You can find me on, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me under Brent Laster there. Um, you can also uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Brent C, as in uh, cowboy, <laughs> Laster, L-A-S-T-E-R is the last name out there. And uh, I look forward, of course, to seeing folks at conferences or in some of the online training classes out there. Always happy to talk about Git Jenkins or 
continuous delivery in any of those topics. Well, Brent Laster, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Once again, we invite you to check out the two courses on Jenkins 2 and the two courses on Git that our guest, Brent Laster, will be presenting in March and April. Also be on the lookout for Brent's presentation at OzCon in July and his forthcoming book, Jenkins 2 Up and Running, which will be out this spring. And an early release version of that book is now available on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, as is information on Brent's training courses. And we'll have links to all these things in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Lyles.